0: At some point, I suppose we should do full team coverage on Nicki Minaj and Cardi B got in a f- actual fist fight at some music event over the <laughs> weekend, rolling around on the floor, pulling on their hair and trying to gouge each other's eyes out. A shoe was thrown. A shoe was thrown. That's good stuff right there. So, yes, full team coverage on that later in the program.
3: Yeah, super. Great. Something to look forward to. Meanwhile, if I might take the conversation to a higher plane... It's a pleasure to welcome uh, back to the Armstrong and Getty show after too long an absence, Greg Lukianoff, author, along with Jonathan Haidt, of The Coddling of the American Mind and a book-length extension and examination of their terrific, groundbreaking Atlantic article of a couple of months ago, or a couple of years ago, rather. Uh, Greg is also, I believe, one of the founders of FIRE, defending individual rights in higher education, joins us now. Hello, Greg. How are you, sir?
2: Uh, It's great to be back. Thank you. How
0: Uh, long ago was that Atlantic article?
2: It was uh, 2015. It was wow. the summer of 2015.
0: Wow. Well, you didn't turn things around with that article, because things are worse now than they were then. Well, there.
2: hey, 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 you
3: have to slow the ship before you turn it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, by That's the way, be-
2: we decided to write the book as things got so much crazier after we wrote the article. We were like, ooh, okay, uh, I think we have to go a little deeper in that. Yeah, no Okay. A,
3: a couple of quick notes before we dive into it in depth, Greg. Uh, number one, I am proudly sending my youngest to a university that gets a green light from fire. For, for communication, and I uh, thank you for uh, furnishing that resource. Secondly, as I was uh, googling your book and had typed simply "the cod," uh, your book came up immediately instead wow. of that delicious fish. So it is a delicious fish. It is. <laughs> it, it is getting. <laughs> it is getting some uh, some uh, some attention. Thank God. So let's talk about uh, the coddling of the American mind, specifically young minds um and the damage that's being done uh, uh, what led us to where we are now
2: well the whole book is trying to figure out what exactly happened around 2013 2014 and the, the my, my simple perspective is i started working on campuses back in 2001 And for my entire career, the best constituency for freedom of speech were the students themselves. And then sometime around 2013, 2014, we saw this sort of uprising of students demanding that people be disinvited. They were actually demanding new speech codes. Sometimes they were demanding professors and administrators are fired for what they said, even if it's clearly protected uh, speech. And this was a really – the shift seemed to happen overnight. And one of the reasons why I started talking to John Haidt about this was because I was also noticing that um, it was kind of like this medicalization of the reasons for why they were uh, at demanding that speakers not be invited um, that talked about you know things like PTSD and trauma but in a way that I know enough about psychology just from being kind of a hobbyist to be like that doesn't really sound quite right that isn't that is the way I think a psychologist would actually approach it so the original book was uh, the original article was trying to say listen uh, if we're wondering why um, what, what's going on on campus we should be aware of the fact that we're teaching a generation the intellectual habits of anxious and depressed people. Uh, and the book really takes that further, goes much deeper into the, into the data. The data now actually really firmly uh, presents the fact that we are dealing with a very serious mental health problem on campus. But we also add to that, you know, don't teach a generation the habits of depressed and anxious people, but also don't teach them the habits of polarized people.
3: Well, and, and that was the section in the article that, you know, and I've read it several times that is stuck so firmly in my mind that we are actually teaching Mental illness, for instance, you know, catastrophizing the smallest of, of negative incidents or, or being sure that everyone's against me, or I'm sure you have the list of, uh, you know, uh, anxiety provoking tendencies at, at, at ready. Tell us more about that.
2: Yeah, those are called cognitive distortions, and I know about this from a very personal angle. I actually give some very personal details in this book that I I realized after I'd written them. I hadn't even told my you know my wife and family about uh, about some of them. But I, I used to go through really bad bouts of depression, and I learned about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the most effective non-drug um, interventions you can have for anxiety and depression. And what it is, and it's kind of amazing. It's just looking at those kind of crazy voices that we all have in our heads that, you know, like when you go on a date and it doesn't go well and you say to yourself, I'm going to die alone. Um, Anxious and (laughs) depressed people do a lot more of that, unsurprisingly. And what's so amazing about CBT is if you just get in the habit of talking back to some of our exaggerated voices in your head, um, and it worked wonders for me, you can really help uh, yourself battle back. Depression and anxiety. Um, the book, you know, talks about how we seem to be telling. And the, the book opens up with sort of a story about going to the world's worst guru, um, and he gives you all sorts of terrible advice. And the premise has always been that it's almost like we're taking the worst advice you could possibly give to young people or any people, and we're giving it to a generation as if it's good advice.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because you're right about that um, uh, that way to approach that. Because I've I've tried to do that in my life sometimes when I'm really anxious and worried, I think. Is there anything actually bad happening? No, there's nothing actually bad happening. But our college campuses are telling kids there is something very bad happening, which is weird. Constantly. Yeah, yeah, constantly.
2: And, and, and that they'll be damaged forever for it. We actually, right. we, in one of the chapters, we give a, the, um, sort of the, the, the thought experiment of going into a college psycho- psychologist's office and them asking you, you know, you're saying, you yeah, listen, doc, I feel anxious and depressed, and the doctor just being like, oh my God, that must mean you're in great danger. <laughs> we, we need to help you figure out a place to hide. And so instead of wow. like uh, play, uh, trying to get these sort of anxieties to sort of calm down a little bit and, and learn to be sort of like more rational in our approaches, we're doing a generation And this is, to be clear, this is something we're doing to a generation. I'm not blaming the students themselves for this. Um, Good point. uh, That we're telling them that you need to be much more frightened than you actually need to be, that you're in much greater threat than you need to be, and that uh, people are basically all out to get you.
0: Well, that's interesting, because it'd be bad advice even if it were 1968. And, like, (laughs) things were crazy and dangerous. It'd be a bad thing to say, you need to focus on these negative things and not overcome them. Even if there and, were and, bad and things, but there so are so, no bad things. So. It's never been a more comfortable, safe time to be on a college campus, and they're convincing them to be terrified.
2: Well, no, and that's one thing what we really changed in the book, is we started looking at the bigger picture, because we were, we were thinking that, that that campuses were sort of inculcating these, these bad ideas, but we looked back and we looked into the research, and it looked more like these are things that, that are partially coming, unfortunately, from our generation of parents as well. So two of my favorite chapters in the whole book are actually about uh, paranoid parent- parenting and the elimination of free play, which right. sound like they wouldn't be at all related to campus free speech issues.
3: Oh, they're absolutely they're, related. Of course they are, yeah. sorry.
2: Yeah, <laughs> 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 we think about but, this but stuff a lot. Ways to make a generation of students who feel like they don't really have control of, over their lives and that they're more uh, vulnerable than they actually are. And if you believe that, then sure, having this you know, speaker on campus could, could harm you for life.
3: Right. You know, I do not want to turn this at all political, because then I think people tend to close their ears and, and turn off their minds. But there is undeniably a political use to it. I mean, H.L. Mencken has some absolutely wonderful quotes about politics being the art of frightening the populace with various bugaboos, uh, most of yep. which do not exist. And I think in, in such a comfortable and prosperous time, yep. well, again, it's it's politically very useful to frighten people on, on all sides of the political, well, all sides, you can't have all, you know, everywhere along the political spectrum.
2: Yeah, well, I'm reading Yuval Harari's new book, which he had the temerity to come out with his book the same day that we, <laughs> that we did. But he talks about how this is sort of a tactic for keeping people sort of under your thumb, too, is just keep everybody scared and you can get away with whatever you want.
3: Yeah, Greg Lukianoff is the author, along with uh, John Haidt, of The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, on that theme, I, I kind of wish that was what was going on
0: because I think it'd be easier to combat. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Obviously, we're not doing that as parents. We're not trying to scare our children for some political end. There's something weird in our culture about well, thinking we're we all going to be immortal or, or or something. Right
2: that's why we call them problems of progress. I tend to think that there are some kind of predictable outcomes that you would see as we have kind of like more free time, as we have more, you know, resources and we're less afraid of dying of the plague, we're able to move on to sort of next level uh, things. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I am I have two kids under three, believe me, and I try to say this on every interview, I get the instinct to protect the living hell out of your kids and to do it at a level that might, uh, and that you have to kind of rein that in. But the problem is for, you know, a good 20 years now, there hasn't been a lot of people saying listen by the way there can actually be downsides to, uh, to being obsessed with both the physical and more particularly the emotional quote-unquote safety of your kids there can actually be a consequences to that and finally people like Julie Lithcott Hames who wrote a book called how to raise an adult and we interview in the book or Lenore Skenazy, the famous free range mom are helping bring attention to the idea that yes there is a downside to this this style of parenting
0: I took you know it's so it's so in our culture I took my son to the playground over the weekend at his school, he likes it when I take him to his school so he can play on the monkey bars the way he wants to. On the weekend, he can climb up on top of them and stuff. He can't do that during the school hours because they won't let him. So oh, I mean, th- th- we've got all these so many different ways we're being attacked for doing anything the the, the slight bit, bit edgy. F- starting when we're from when we're really young, no wonder we're uh, you know frightened of the slightest discomfort.
2: Yeah, and, and that also, unfortunately, has to do with my chosen profession, which tend to ruin everything, uh, lawyers. Um, we, we have a whole chapter on how, at universities, sort of over-bureaucratization, but also rightful and understandable concerns about lawsuits um, yep. is one of the things that causes this really exaggerated, oh my God, we're all in a tremendous dangerous sense Sure. On God
3: dang it, this is so complicated and so dangerous for society. Uh, Greg Lukianoff, Greg, can we uh, put you on hold for just a couple of minutes and come back and continue the discussion? That'd be great. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, I want to ask specifically about uh, administrations on college campuses and the nature of college education right now and how it's contributing to the problem. The
0: Coddling of the American Mind, a book that uh, needs to be, you know, read. And I discussed. think it's incredibly important. Oh, it might be the most important thing we got going. All right, so stay with us. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show.
1: Armstrong and Getty.
2: The conscience of the nation.
1: The Armstrong
0: and Getty Show. It's troubling, and I know I'm a part of it. I know I'm a part of the coddling of the American mind. We all are. It's a cultural, societal thing, and it plays out on our college campuses in such bizarre ways. Oh, my God.
3: Continuing the conversation with Greg Lukianoff, the co-author with Jonathan Haidt of The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. You should know, going in, my admiration for Mr. Uh, Lukianoff, Mr. Haidt, uh, it's somewhere between righteous admiration and they've got to get a restraining order. Um, (laughs) Very, very big fan of what you fellows are are writing about. So, So just... A a question, you know, wisdom and intelligence are practically unrelated. I mean, you can see a lot of incredibly intelligent people who just are are completely out to sea. Um, What is motivating the supercharged desire to promote, call it political correctness, call it, uh, you know, coddling minds, the veal calf syndrome, I call it. Why is everybody so motivated to do this on college campuses?
2: Well, you know, we talk about a bunch of different threads in the book. We give about six different explanatory threads about why some of these trends have gotten so much worse. But part of it um, is that, you know, there's not a lot of uh, pushback on college campuses. Uh, And essentially, once you create a echo chamber, um, things, things tend to get much more intense. You have more polarization. People get more radical in their points of view. And unfortunately, the fact is that um, even though universities have always been tilted more leftward, they're, they're now, uh, in, some, in, in some departments, they're more like 11 to 30 to 1 in, ter- in terms of ratios. Now, if you, you don't have to have perfect parity or anything like that. But now, you know, I know from my own experience, when, they, when I was in law school, for example, at, at Stanford in California, um, that if you, end, if you end up in a group where everybody's just saying, not they're not disagreeing with you constructively, they're just saying, yeah, and you don't go far enough to, to sort of more show off like, how morally virtuous they are instead of have a real discussion, it can really spiral out of control quickly.
0: Mm. <sighs> Is there any reversing in this? I know we, we've, uh, we've pointed out a couple of universities across the country where somebody stood up um, in the administration and said, no, we're, we've taken this too far written op-eds, that sort of thing. Is there any reversing of this going on right now?
2: University of Chicago is definitely one of the schools that's trying to push back on this. Um, and And they... Uh, issued something that is now simply known as the Chicago Statement, which is a statement of academic freedom kind of updated for the modern age. A lot of, like, the old academic freedom statements, the best the last best ones came out in, like, the 1970s. So University of Chicago wrote this great statement talking about how, you know, like, we have to stand by speech even when it's offensive and you don't disinvite someone who's invited because you don't like their point of view, and really trying to prepare students for, for the, just the fact that when done correctly, education is going to be emotional. It's going to be difficult it 's going it's going gonna, it's gonna to challenge you it 's going to hurt a little bit you know in uh, in, in, in your head <laughs> um, and so far the good news is that about close to forty different schools across the country have adopted some version of the the, the chicago statement
3: well that 's good that 's good news uh, so let 's uh, let 's go back to a point you were making earlier about uh, illustrating to parents the downside of you know turning their their kid into a veal calf because you know we all think of terrible things that could happen it 's a natural protective yep, impulse. Yep. Uh, etc. I I tweeted a couple of things over the weekend on the theme that since it's inevitable that a, uh, a monopoly on thought or a monopoly on opinion always results in horror, uh, if you can demonize or make illegal other points of view, you know, every time we've tried this in human history, it goes horribly, horribly wrong. You think that would be a fairly easy point to illustrate to young, bright people attending colleges?
2: Yeah, well, but, but part of the problem is, and this is something that really brought uh, Height and I together, is that, um, you know, Bill Bishop pointed out in a book called The Big Sort that we increasingly live in more politically homogeneous, not just counties, but even neighborhoods down to the city block. So a lot of us don't even have, you know, constructive people to disagree with who live next to us. Add to that social media, which kind of pats you on the back for having yourself in the most effective echo chamber you could you put mm-hmm. together. And of course, some, some of these things are getting worse. And my hope is that you know, it's it, social media is like living in a brand new city. Like we, we, we it, it just it just popped out of nowhere, and we're all wandering around, and we're you know, it, we're we're really messing it up, and really don't know how to live there. My hope is that we'll get better and smarter about culturally dealing with um, living in a society where we where we actually have to fight to have exposure to ideas that challenge us.
0: And I like that you've expanded it, uh, looking at this problem not just to the college campuses, even though it's, um you know particularly interesting there since it's the opposite of what is supposed to happen on a college campus but yeah. the, all through life the the, the coddling of uh, children's bodies and then their minds in college and now you know last week the big story David Remnick disinviting Steve Bannon because he wasn't mm. his people didn't want him to debate i mean in all areas of our life we're we're trying to avoid ideas and and yeah. and, and feeling uncomfortable in any way it's weird for a society
2: and this is what undergirds my whole... I don't, actually, I don't think it's that weird. I think the situation normal for most of human history is the way we treat dissenters. <laughs> if we make them drink hemlock, we kick them out of our communities, we chop off their heads, we tie them to stakes and burn them. Um, this, is all, this is history normal, as we're, as we're tribal and we get rid of people who disagree. Hmm. But one of the greatest inventions we've ever come up with as a species is, oh, my God, what if I actually listen to the people who I really dislike? What if I actually see if they have a point? What if I stop listening just to my you know, neighbor and kin? And it's, it's funny because when you see people you know, advocating on campus for, by the way, words are just another form of violence, opinions are you know, inherently violent if, they, if they're really offensive. Um, what I always like to point out is these aren't new ideas. These are very, very old Bad ideas, and yes, it's an invention to say that there's a distinction entirely between opinions and uh, and violence. But as I always say, it's also one of the best inventions we've ever come up with.
3: Yeah, and in the minute we have left, it it just reminds me once again that human nature doesn't change. It's, a lot of the language you hear is just a variation on the charges of heresy that some 12th century pope might throw around.
2: That is exactly right. I wrote a piece called We Are All Blasphemers and pointed out how every last one of us um, should be executed in the eye of someone either currently living in the world right now or somewhere in history.
3: Wow, that's
0: that's a good point right there.
3: Yeah, indeed. Greg Lukianoff, who is the author, along with Jonathan Haidt, of The Coddling of the American Mind. I suggest everybody in the world, buy five copies and send it to everybody <laughs> you know. Uh, Greg, it's always great to talk to you. Keep up the good work, and we look forward to the next time.
2: Tremendously fun discussion. Thank you. All right, thanks.
0: Boy, and he he's right, I'm wrong. I'm right that it's weird for our culture, but it's not weird for human history. It is the most common thing for human history that you don't allow any other point of view sure. other than the official one. Yeah. Well, weird is in
3: off putting and disturbing. I think you're right about that. What's coming up in our news, Marshall Phillips?
4: Well, we've got Republican Senator Ben Sass in his grim assessment of both political parties. New worries today about Syria. The red line about to be crossed with chemical weapons. And the Kaepernick effect on Nike sales. We have an update for you. minutes no. from now.
0: Oh, I want to hear that. Yeah, this whole Syria thing. And, you know, if we act, everybody's going to claim Trump did it to... Hide the Woodward book and that sort of thing. Monica missiles. Yeah, exactly. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Did, Did I see that Aaron Rodgers, having just signed a $135 million contract, got hurt in the first half?
3: Oh, I didn't know that. I heard he staged a stirring comeback at the end of the game. Yeah, oh, well, he
0: must have come back. Yeah, he
3: was carted off and then right. came back after halftime.
4: Oh, right. the courage. Yes.
0: So I just saw the carted off part, but he came back. Uh-huh. But he he's the highest paid player in the NFL now. 135
4: million dollar uh, deal amazing. total. Woo-ree.
0: Let's get to the news now, Marcia Phillips.
4: I got to tell you if you think there's too much drama in the Trump White House, you're certainly not alone. In fact, Republican Nebraska Senator Ben Sass says the current White House causes him to regularly consider
1: leaving his party. Frankly, neither of these parties have a long-term vision for the future of the country. You know, 10 years from now, where are we going to be in the future of work when young people are disrupted out of jobs three times a decade? Future of war and cyber the collapse of community like there's massive stuff happening in america and these parties are really pretty content to do
2: 24-hour news cycles screaming at each other the main thing that the democrats are for is being anti-republican and anti-trump and the main thing republicans are for is being anti-democrat and anti-cnn and
1: neither of these things are really worth getting out of bed in the morning for i think we should be talking about where the country's going to be in 10 years
3: the only you way need to drum him out of the party well that's that any... sassy
0: and he probably will be. The only way you say that is if you don't care about whether or not you get reelected. And he
3: and he doesn't. And uh, that's what we're talking about when we're telling you people stop screaming at each other over R versus D. He was asked about whether he's planning
0: to run for president in 2020, because they ask anybody who all of a sudden becomes a media darling that right. question. He said he's more likely to run for the local noxious weed control board. <laughs> <laughs> he said we spend way too much time talking about campaigning in Washington, D.C., and noxious weeds are, well, they're noxious. He also said he considers himself an independent conservative who caucuses with the Republicans. Pretty similar to what Bernie was all those years, an independent socialist yeah. who caucused with the Democrats. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the people like Bernie Sanders, who have an ideology and have to go along with some party to be in the you know, in politics at all... People like Bernie and Ben Sass get a lot of attention for a reason, because none of these other jokers believe freaking anything other than they want to stay in office and get rich.
3: Uh-huh. It's so frustrating. That is a nice reminder of a beloved family joke, though. On the, uh, the approach from the south to beautiful Sun River, Oregon, every summer, there's a big sign along the highway that said, noxious weeds are your responsibility, with your really emphasized and... Running joke was I'd occasionally ask the kids, now, noxious swedes whose responsibility
4: <laughs> do, do you think they are? Yeah, <laughs> oh,
3: man, I miss having kids around.
4: Switching gears, the Syrian government may be preparing to use chlorine gas against the nation's last rebel stronghold, according to a number of U.S. officials. Washington is getting ready. They're preparing options for a response if the Bashar al Assad carries out the attack. President Trump repeatedly threatened to carry out an attack against the Syrian regime if there are mass killings in Idlib province, where thousands of rebels are holding out along with as many as 3 million citizens. Yeah, so there's,
0: there's a ton of people there, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, two two things on this. Is the rest of the world thinking about doing anything about this? Why people love the whole Holocaust memorial never again talk, but... Anytime somebody's setting up to pull off another holocaust of some sort, the world just says, eh, what are you going to do? Somebody ought to do something about this. Maybe the United States will stop it. And if they don't, I guess that's just the way it goes. Yep. So you got that angle. Then you've got the Trump vowed we wouldn't allow that to happen. I don't know where I come down on this, whether or not we should use our awesome military power to try to stop something like this from happening. I mean, it seems like it's a... I'm walking down the street and somebody's attacking an old woman. Mm -hmm. I should do something to try to stop that from happening. Um, On the other hand, the fact that the rest of the world is willing to ignore it, it's it's pretty frustrating.
3: Yeah, we all, and and there are times I don't think the president understands this um, thoroughly enough when he complains about the amount of money we spend around the world to, to keep the world at peace. But I think we all benefit when norms like no gas attacks are enforced. I think it's good for all of humanity when somebody gets punched in the face who deserves it. Um, but it is a little frustrating that the rest of the world points at us and says, somebody ought to do something. You're somebody. Yeah.
0: Right. And if Trump does do something, I guarantee you there's going to be talk that it's because of the Woodward book, because of the op-ed in the New York Times, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, well,
2: I would
3: hope the fact that there's a screaming headline every single day would weaken that argument. You would think, but it doesn't.
4: Angry people and alleged boycotters aside, Nike is apparently getting a big sales boost from its Colin Kaepernick commercial. New report says Nike's online sales grew 31% over the Labor Day weekend, a big jump from last year's 17% seasonal increase. You know how I'd rather
3: be ignorant than learn something on Bing?
4: (laughs) I'd rather be
3: bloodied and barefoot than wear Nike shoes at this point. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's wow. right.
0: Wow! You would go unshod rather Absolutely. than wear
3: Nike in all conditions. Mm. Nike. Mm. I have like thirty five Nike golf shirts that are still hanging in my closet. So I got to figure out what to do with them. Mm. Nike. I'll just sweat in them an extra
2: <laughs> next time I play.
4: Nike stock initially fell over 3% after the shoe company announced its endorsement deal with Kaepernick, but Sell. the shares have since begun to rebound. And, Buy. For, and for his part, Tiger Woods is endorsing the new ad. I think Nike's trying to uh, you know get out ahead of it and try and do something that's special, and I think they've done that. It's a, it's a beautiful spot. Tiger Woods. And uh, some pretty powerful people in the spot. Right,
0: right. Tiger Woods who gets a check for what? At various times, his life, $90 million a uh, year from in your Nike. Yeah. Says Nike did a good job. He yeah, thinks they're on the stuff. right
3: side of this. Yeah.
0: Um, Washington Post with an uh, editorial that I thought was really good from a guy named Michael Serrazio. I don't know his work, but he said, Nike isn't trying to be woke. It's trying to sell shoes. Putting Colin Kaepernick in ads is branding, not social action. Yep, But I was just a business yeah. decision. Yeah, So there you go.
4: Uh, Jack, you had mentioned an NFL contest featuring Aaron Rodgers, the Packers' Aaron Rodgers. He came back from a first-half knee injury to lead the Packers to their biggest fourth-quarter comeback in franchise history wow, over really? the Bears. There was a great play, a great call from the second half where Rodgers managed to uh, throw a 75-yard touchdown pass to Randall Cobb. Snap to A-Rod. Rushes on. Has time. Looking.
1: Throws middle. Yes. Got This.
3: Randall Cobb to the lead score. Dang the, it. Hey, the color em, commentator. Yeah, I the only th- guy who thought the entire takeaway was "shut the hell up." Color commentator. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> was that the great what's his name? Former Bengal <laughs> Boomer Iason? No, Ikey Woods. Other Bengal, uh, tall guy, receiver, white guy. He's always working with Al Michael. Oh, Chris what's Collins. Yeah, Chris Collins. Well, he was worth. a quarterback, right? Yeah. Oh, he was a wide receiver. He was a Why wide receiver. He's a Hall of Fame wide receiver.
3: Listen to you lecturing people on sports. (laughs) You couldn't name three teams. Well, I could name
0: three teams. I couldn't name three players. There you go. Um, But when I hear a clip like that, I think uh, my only reaction is, damn, I missed that.
3: Yeah. I got FOMA. I've got
0: severe FOMO when I hear that. Yeah, I know it. But the trouble with watching sports is you watch 40 hours of eh, your life would have been fine without
3: get to one of those. Oh, I watched a fair yeah. amount of eh yesterday. Chucking the ball to the guys in the wrong color shirts, that sort of thing. And worse. Hmm. Boring. Stupid.
4: And I'll be back. There you go. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips. Here I'm starting to get a show, The Conscience of the Nation. I might be back. So was that just such an
0: exciting play that uh, Collinsworth couldn't keep his mouth shut? Was that what was happening? Because he doesn't usually do that. Or was he drunk?
3: Oh, oh man. Or wow. on drugs. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> Or
0: both. That's indict yeah.
4: the poor man. Yeah, yeah that was, that was right. the
0: local. That was the local team. That wasn't the the TV no, broadcast. No. Oh, was it wasn't. Yeah, no. that sounded like oh, Al probably some ex-packer. Really?
3: Probably some offensive lineman from the seventies who's beloved. He's got a couple of car dealerships. I like it when you get the
0: local call with the people who just get so excited when their team is winning. They just lose their ass. We did <laughs> <should>. it. <Yeah. laughs> I think that's awesome. <laughs> needs to be more of that, not less.
3: Um. Hmm. British sailors are running rampant in Florida, rampaging drunkenly. Is this the end of the special relationship? Plus, what was the other thing we were going to do? Oh, we looking forward to it. Uh, oh, hey, I have a question, a common question from the listeners to answer. Okay. In shockingly frank uh, form.
0: Got a party rising in Sweden that's really anti-immigration, and uh, people are saying, yeah, me too. Getting a lot of
3: attention. Oh yeah, I could talk a long time about that.
0: Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show.
2: Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the the nation.
1: new book came out, or the excerpts did, and it's called All the President's Men Think He's an Idiot. And just, uh, <laughs> all
3: right. All right. Clever little fella.
0: Woodward's up on the Today Show. I will start reading the book tonight, and I will report any tidbits I find entertaining.
3: Oh, that's right. Do We have another Mar clip that we're thinking of playing, in which he and Ben Affleck, who... No, no, I'm sorry. It was Jim Carrey. That's right. We're making a plea to embrace socialism in the United States. Did you watch the new Jim
0: Carrey show where he plays the uh, Mr. Rogers type character who's going through a personal crisis? I've
3: seen the first episode. I haven't, I haven't finished the series. What do you think
0: of it? It's interesting. Yeah.
3: On it, what of the many getting, outlets for entertainment is it? Showtime,
0: right? Okay. Okay. I think um, it's... Okay. It's uh, getting a lot of attention. and uh, Yeah, it looked interesting. I'm not a Jim Carrey guy. I always feel like I can see him working. Huh. I can see what he's doing. See him acting? Here's me trying to be this. You know, it's showtime. You're correct. Okay.
3: Thank you. Uh, give me a dollar. It's showtime, folks.
0: A um, couple of quick texts I'll hit you with, and then Joe will take over, and I will see It's down.
3: interactive, don't you know? Your voice is welcome here.
0: Text line's four one five two nine five kftc I can't wear my Nike shoes because they hurt my feet while I'm standing for the anthem! <laughs> um, Thank you for that. Excellent interview with your guest earlier. Now, please resume the regular programming, staff abuse, misogyny, and misanthropic rants. Oh, please.
3: Okay. Can't wait to get back to that.
0: <clears throat> hey, Jack, I'm having a bacon and chocolate pudding for breakfast right now. The benefit of being 71. David in Oregon. There you
3: go. You're 71,
0: you figure what? At this point, why not? Bacon he has and no chocolate pudding. more Fs pudding.
3: to give. Yeah. Clear a, clean out Fs. He turns out his pockets. <laughs> I hear that, brother. Enjoy yourself.
0: That's what my wife always says about our pug. He has no S's to give. (laughs) He doesn't. He doesn't either.
3: Um, Oh, man, that's funny. Baxter is the anti-pug. Patrols the yard constantly, constantly looking for wild beasts that threaten us. yeah.
0: It's just, you know, like uh, our, our newest dog, which is a couple of weeks just recently, but it's a Labrador something or other. And like all dogs like that, just do anything to get petted. Pugs yeah. don't care. You pet them and they look at you like, why are you scratching my head? This is weird. What are you touching me for, yeah, dude? This is weird. Yeah, exactly. Oh, we also got this text. I grew up, uh, I grew, I'm grew. i in California, <clears throat> and my um, my parents won't allow kids to come over to our house, never did, because they were afraid of getting sued.
4: What? Which oh, my God.
0: is where we're headed. I mean, I would. I won't do that, but that's where we're headed. The reason the school <laughs> won't allow kids to play on top of the... Jungle Jim, I'm assuming, is because, well, if they fell off and break their arm, then we have to pay $2 million or it's, whatever it it's is. It's
3: both. It's both the uh, never-ending quest for safety, the idea that that is the highest uh, you know, aspiration, that and fear of lawyers. But it, Hard to figure out which has got its nose in the lead.
0: I don't think most people know this. I only know it because we got some uh, emails about it. If, you're, if a kid comes over to your house and trips in the backyard playing catch and breaks his ankle, their parents aren't the kind of people they're going to see you. But their insurance company is. Yes. And their insurance company will sue your insurance company whether they want it to happen or not.
3: Mm-hmm. That's disturbing. And then your insurance company, in the time-honored fashion of insurance companies, will just take a look to make sure that you weren't at fault. Right. Because if you were stupid, they don't have to oh, pay. Oh, you had the sprinkler out in the yard? Well, then. Come on, now. Who puts the sprinkler in the yard? <laughs> right. You should put it in the, in the house where it's safe. Uh, If you're just tuning in now, you've made a terrible, terrible mistake. You missed uh, Greg Lukianoff, the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. That was the
0: only good thing we had planned for the day. So if you're just
3: tuning in now. (laughs) Who who chatted with us at length, but you can check it out via podcast, certainly. Uh, Speaking of um, wisdom and balance and ideas and that sort of thing, we've received a number of emails and texts about uh, our relationship with The Knife Media. You remember, we used to talk to old Jens from yeah. uh, the Knife Media Interesting about, guy. Uh, you know, balanced coverage and bias in journalism and that sort of thing.
0: I really learned a lot about the various buzzwords you look for, and mm-hmm. I, I, I see it all the time when I'm looking at headlines now,
3: and, the way they're trying to shade it. And we don't talk to them anymore for a couple of reasons, which I'll explain. Prior to us not talking to them, the big question was... Hey, Joe's are,
0: anti-sex cult, man. You're so but such a
3: prude. What? Why don't you idiots Google it and and know that it's like tied up with the Nexium sex cult? Well, these idiots knew it uh, for quite some time, and it, what it appeared is that some of the people involved in the Nexium thing financed the Knife Media. Um, but the knife media, whether it was like a like a um, uh, what do they call it a front organization for like a mob family, they open up a uh, what's a good example they open up a dry cleaners. It's an actual dry cleaner. so they dry your clean your clothes and your clothes look really nice, but it's to launder money or to make money for or whatever. Um, we figured that was like the worst it seemed to be because everybody involved that we talked to was a serious journalist with serious credentials and they were doing precisely what they said they were doing, which is taking a look at media bias and outlining it and helping people understand well, where, um, what it looks like.
0: And my feeling was if that's what he's doing on this show, it really didn't matter that much to me. But
3: well, I won't. Be. I was just interested. In I won't his be a take on front their- for sex cults, Jack. Rape cults label this section of the podcast jack is soft on rape cults anyway uh but then they ceased operation cuz they were uh, going broke mm. and so that's well there's i, I could believe plus i was getting a little bored with the interviews honestly there there was a certain sameness yeah, to
0: yeah i think i think he made his point Right, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I could also believe that there's not a lot of money to be made in pointing out how the news is biased, even though it'd be nice if it was, but a lot of people don't care. I saw the headline over the weekend. I think it was the New York Times. It was one of their big publications. Wages start to grow for the first time in decades, but will it last? Putting a negative spin on an entirely positive story. Right. Like your eight-year-old's having their birthday. Having their birthday, but one year closer to death. <laughs> <And I'm> like, <laughs> what?
3: Why are you right. searching for something negative in this positive news? Well, people have their their biases, their tendencies, their yeah, desires. I've I... been listening to the wage growth story now for a couple of years. You know, uh, the economy's booming, but wages haven't grown. Why? Well, it's obviously because of all the spa- slack in the labor participation rate. But finally, enough of that slack is taken up that wages actually start to rise. And now the thing is, but will it last? Will there be a depression? <laughs> Will there soon be cannibalism,
4: starvation?
3: <laughs> Alright. Alright, right. right, already. Alright, <laughs> already. <laughs> oh hilarious. That's it, Homer.
0: Oh, I didn't get to all my stories. Well luckily we're on one more award winning hour, if you get it. Coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show.
1: Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may know
3: Jackson Pollock, the painter famous for his iconic drip paintings. But what do you know about his wife, artist Lee Krasner?